You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. All right, well, we're going through the study of God Wrote a Book. I announced last week that we would be resuming that. We have divided that study uh, that you find there in your notebook into three different sections. The first section dealt with basically the theology of Scripture where we covered, and this was the doctrinal section where we covered the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy and infallibility and what those mean as well as the promises in Scripture that God has given to us that He would preserve His Word. And it's not that we question if God has spoken. We don't question whether or not Scripture is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. We're not defending any of that in this series of lessons that I've been teaching. Instead, what we're really doing is assuming that God has spoken, and then we're answering the question, how has He preserved Scripture for us over the last 2,000 years? Since God has spoken, not if God has spoken, but since God has spoken, how has He preserved, how has He worked to preserve His Word? And how has He given us the Scripture? And then we looked a little bit at the structure of Scripture and the writing uh, styles and materials. This was kind of the second set of sessions that we did, which really dealt with the structural or the textual issues of the New Testament. We looked at the structure of Scripture, how it is divided into Old Covenant and New Covenant. We looked at the different writing styles of scribes and people who uh, transmitted and copied Scripture for us. And then we looked at the books that were written and how they were written and copied and eventually circulated and circulated widely. And we understand that because that when God makes a covenant with His people, He gives to them a revelation that accompanies that covenant. We saw that with the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. And so we have reason to expect that if there's going to be a new covenant, if God has inaugurated or initiated a new covenant, that that new covenant would also be accompanied with a series of a section of covenantal writings, which we call the New Testament. And then we looked at the doctrines of apostolic authority. We saw that the apostles were the vehicles of divine revelation, and their writings were treated and read and used as if they were authoritative in the very Word of God. And thus, apostolic writings were cherished and collected and copied and then circulated. And then in that second second section dealing with textual issues, we covered textual variants, the inevitability of them, the types of variants that were made, mistakes that were made in the copying process, And then, of course, through all of that, we ask the question, has God preserved His Word even in spite of the various copying mistakes that were made and the different textual variants that were made? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. He's did that through widespread circulation, the the sheer number of the volume of copies that were made, and the rapid distribution of those documents across a wide geographical area. And we, then we looked at an example of that, which was the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we saw how God had preserved that and, and uh, that discovery, how it shines the light on the preservation accuracy of the Old Testament. So that's where we've come so far, and those are the two major sections of the study that we've looked at so far, the doctrinal section and the, the textual section dealing with the textual transmission of the New Testament. And now we come to the third one, which is the canonical section dealing with canonical issues of the New Testament. And uh, I apologize that we've had sort of breaks between these three sections. The last time we were in this study, we were uh, that, was, that was before Thanksgiving. So it has been a little bit of a while. It's been a couple of months that I haven't been teaching this. But Lord willing, we have five to seven, depending on how this works out, uh, lessons in the last part of this, and then we'll be done with this study. So we are in Lesson 11 in your notebook. Lesson 11, defending or defining and defending the 
canon of Scripture. This section, so in, in your notebook, find your spot there if you can. Find my notes. Lesson 11, Defining and Defending the Canon. Now some of you are probably wondering, what is a canon? Is it a big metal thing that they put on pirate ships that shoots large caliber ammunition with black powder? What is a cannon? It's not that. How many of you know what I mean when I, when I use the phrase the canon of Scripture? How many of you understand what I mean by that? Okay, Pretty good, pretty good cross-section there. Um, or when we talk about something being a non-canonical book or a canonical book. Or when we use the reference or the phrase the canon is closed and not open. We're talking about it's a theological term that we're using, refer to the canon of Scripture. And this introduces us to a subject that most Christians simply don't give a lot of thought to. And unfortunately, the enemy uses this to attack us frequently. In fact, years ago, um, do you remember the Da Vinci Code when that came out? How many of you saw the movie, The Da Vinci Code? Okay, a couple people. Nobody? Nobody else? Just a couple people? Okay, good, about half a dozen. It's not a sin to say you saw that. I almost watched it for research purposes. But several years ago when the Da Vinci Code book came out, the allegations or charges that were made in the Da Vinci Code were really designed to capitalize on the ignorance of both Christian and non-Christians in the area of of biblical canonicity and how we got the New Testament. So a lot of the allegations that were made and the charges about uh, secret councils of bishops that that uh, approved certain books and disapproved of other books and that brought in uh, and got rid of teachings that they didn't like out of the Gospels and purged the Gospels of those and some grand conspiracy. It was great fiction. I used to tell people it might make good fiction, but it's like uh, the Piercing the Darkness or This Present Darkness, Frank Peretti's novels. They might make good fiction, but they're horrible theology. Same thing with the Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code really capitalized on the ignorance of Christians on this biblical issue of canonicity. How many of you have heard of the Gospel of Thomas? Probably a lot of you. The Gospel of Judas. The Gospel of Peter. Do you realize that there are more Gospels than just the four Gospels in your New Testament? There are more Gospels than just those four that were written? How do we know? And, and this is, or let me ask you another question. How many of you have heard reference to the lost books of the Bible? Lost books of the Bible. About every, I don't know, year, 18 months, two years or something, National Enquirer will run that old headline, right? New, new lost books of the Bible found. And they're usually referring to some Gnostic gospel or some, some pseudepigraphal work of the early church. And uh, they refer to these as the lost books of the Bible. So here's the question that we're going to be addressing this week and next week, Lord willing. How do we know that our Bible contains all that it should have in it? We should give some thought to these questions. How do we know that our Bible contains all that, we should ha- that it should have in it? Are there lost books of the Bible? What about the lost books of the Bible? What about the Gospel of Thomas and Peter and the Gospel of Judas? What about the other religious books that were written around the same time as the New Testament? Who decided which books belong in the Bible and why? And was there some grand conspiracy involved in the selection of the books that we have today? Why do we accept these 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, why do we accept those 66 books and not the other books that might compete to be included in our New Testament? Really dozens of others that might compete to be in our New Testament. Why do we trust only a few men who lived hundreds of years after the apostles to decide which books belong in the Bible? It's a good question, isn't it? Why do we trust a few men who lived hundreds of years after the apostles to decide which books belong in the Bible? And why would they have made that choice? And on what criteria would they have made that choice? What are the criteria that they use to determine this? 
Now I want to tell you, if any of those questions has shaken you or caused you to say to yourself, yeah, that's a good question. Why did we do that? How did that happen? I want you to understand that even in asking the questions that way, I'm not going to answer those questions right now, but I want you to understand that even in asking the questions that way, I have front-end loaded, I have preloaded a whole bunch of presuppositions into the question itself. Things that I have assumed to be true even in asking the question. The presuppositions are bad. For instance, why don't you Christians accept the lost books of the Bible? What is the presupposition behind that question? That there are lost books of the Bible. Right? That there are books that were once in the Bible that were since taken out or lost to history. That's the assumption behind the question, right? Why should we trust a few men who lived hundreds of years after the apostles to determine, trust them to determine which books belonged in the Bible and which books didn't belong in the Bible? Can anybody identify the presupposition that I front end loaded into that question? What's that? Just trust? Haven't I presupposed that that decision was made hundreds of years after the books were written and not when the books were written? Just in asking the question, I presupposed that that process took hundreds of years. And that nobody knew which books belonged in the Bible or out of the Bible until hundreds of years had passed. I've also presupposed in asking that question that there was actually a small group of people who made that determination and not the entire church that made that determination. See, so sometimes even in asking the question or raising the objection, you have to look at what is behind, what's the presupposition behind the objection that the people are raising there? And is that biblically or historically accurate or true? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. So I'm going to give you just a general overview of this subject matter, and I think it's going to take, I'm, I'm certain it's going to take two weeks to do this, but I'm just going to be giving you, I'm, I'm going to try and keep you out of what I call the chloroform layer of the subject matter, which is where we, we get up into something that all of us fall asleep, including the person who's presenting it. So I'm going to keep it out of the chloroform layer, layer into something that's really simple and easy for us to digest and to understand and to kind of present a, a very basic approach to this issue of canonicity. If you want to dive deeper into this, I recommend a few books. And eventually, at some point in the next five to seven weeks, I'm going to put together a list of resources on all of the subject matter that I would recommend. That's not yet in your notebook, but you could put it in there if you wanted to keep it. But The Canon of Scripture by F.F. F. Bruce is a good one. F.F. F. Bruce, The Canon of Scripture. From God to Us by Norman Geisler and William Nix kind of gives a good overview of some of the issues that were going to be addressed in a, in a bit more detail. And then I would recommend, there's two separate books by a man named Michael Kruger, and I think, um, and his last name is spelled K-R-U-G-E-R, Kruger, Michael Kruger. Anything by Michael Kruger on this subject is worth whatever you have to spend in order to get the book. So he has two books on this subject um, that I can find, uh, Canon Revisited, Canon, C-A-N-O-N, not N-N-O-N, Canon Revisited, and the second book, The Question of Canon. Both of those by Michael Kruger, K-R-U-G-E-R. There's also a course that he teaches if you want more, more, uh, a bit more detail. Uh, and there's a, there's a course he teaches that is available on Credo courses, C-R-E-D-O courses. Um, I got it for free and I downloaded the whole thing and I'm listening to it. Uh, if you can get on there, I'm not sure what they charge for. It's a video and audio course with curriculum, 50, 60 bucks, something like that. But if you get on Credo's list, eventually you'll sometimes get, uh, emails for free courses. I happen to pick his up for free. Uh, and I don't even know what the name of the course is, but just look for Michael Kruger. I think he's one of the best people on this subject. A good, solid, reformed guy, doctrinally sound. He deals with issues of canonicity. 
All right, let's define the word canon. This is number one. After all of that introduction, this is number one. What do we mean when we speak of canon? The Greek word is kanon. And the Greek word kanon meant a rule or a ruler or a rod, and not a ruler in the sense of one who rules over men, a potentate, but a ruler in the sense of something that you would use as a measuring stick or a rod by which you might measure something. The Hebrew word kanon is meant a measuring rod. So it was a rod, a kanon was a rod, especially a straight rod used as a rule or a ruler to measure something. Think in terms of your yardstick or your tape measure or a, a ruler. We use the word ruler, right? That's what the word kanon meant. It came to be used, that word came to be used in a figurative sense in the early church. For instance, we find the word, that Greek word in Galatians 6.16, where Paul says, and those who walk by this rule, this kanon, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And there, the Paul is talking about a standard or a uh, uh, the ruler or the measure, those who walk by this measure or by, that, by this rule. So that word was used then in the early church figuratively to describe the standard by which one would would walk. If you wanted to measure something, you say, how long is that? Don't you have to have some standard? You have to have some unit of measurement, right? By which you might know if this pulpit is two feet wide or 22 inches wide or three feet wide. If I say this is eight feet wide, doesn't that presuppose that there is some unit of measure, some standard by which we could put eight of these one-foot units next to here and see if it truly is an eight-foot wide pulpit? Right? That's the idea of a ruler. It's the standard of measure. And so it was used that way. And so the definition in terms of, a, of New Testament books is the list of writings acknowledged by the church as documents of the divine revelation. That's F.F. F. Bruce's definition. The list of the writings acknowledged by the church as documents of the divine revelation. And so when we speak of the canon of Scripture, that's what we're talking about, the list of authoritative books. So you say, why would the word canon come to be used of a list of things? Or why would the word ruler be used as a list of things? There's sort of a double meaning to this word when we speak of the canon of Scripture. The word was first used in this sense by Athanasius, who was the bishop of Alexandria in 367 A.D. He referred to the rule or the ruler, the canon of Scripture. So canon in Greek, or the canon in Greek, would have a series of marks like a modern-day ruler. Doesn't your modern-day ruler have a series of marks on it, right? One-sixteenth, one-eighth, three-sixteenths, one-quarter... And that's as far as I can go from memory. Okay, Doesn't it have a series, a list of marks on your ruler? Well, if you stood that upright and, and you used that marks as a series, a mark, uh, or a series of marks, it came to be used of a list. That's a list of marks. And so that series of marks could be used as a list. And so canon came to be used to refer in the general sense to any series or list of things. That is the sense in which it's used when we speak of the canon of Scripture. When we talk about the canon of Scripture, we're talking about a series or a list of what? Of Scripture, of the books that we consider to be inspired. That's the canon. So on our list, there are 66 marks to our canon. There are 66 hash marks, and we put Genesis through Revelation on those 66 marks. That's what we refer to as the canon of Scripture, that list of books that we consider to be authoritative. And eventually that word, canon, came to be used of Scripture as a whole so that we refer to Scripture as the canon. So when we talk about what is the canon of your religious faith, we would say the Scripture is the canon. Genesis to Revelation, that book is our canon. It's the rule by which we measure life and godliness. It's the rule by which we determine what is true and right, what is revealed, what is false, etc. That's the ruler. That's the standard. It's also the list of books that we include as given by divine revelation. That becomes the rule. That becomes the list, our 66 books. Now, if you ask a Mormon, what is the what is your canon of Scripture? What would they say? They have a different canon, don't they? 
Instead, they have a Bible, King James Bible, so far as it's translated accurately. They always have to put that on there. There's never a worry about Doctrine and Covenants of Pearl of Great Price being translated accurately. But they would include Scripture as part of the canon, but they would also have to include the later revelations, quote-unquote, later revelations of Jesus Christ, which would be the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. Is there a fourth one? Pearl of Great Price. No? Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. Anyway, you get the idea. They have a different canon than we do, a list, a different list of authoritative documents. So we have a certain list of authoritative documents. So when we speak of the canon of Scripture, we are using it really in two ways. We are saying, first, this is our list of authoritative documents. Second, we are saying that Scripture itself is the standard by which we measure everything else. So when we call Scripture the canon, we're saying it is the unit of measurement, it is the yardstick, it is the ruler. It determines. We put everything up against that to see how does it measure up. Scripture then becomes the authority by which we measure all other things in the same way that a ruler becomes the authority by which we measure the length of something. Does that make sense? Okay, so we're using... Canon has sort of a double meaning there depending on how we're using it, but it always refers to Scripture. So it refers to the list of books as well as the fact that Scripture itself is the measuring rod by which we measure everything else. Now, there were three concerns in the early church which led to the need to officially recognize which of the writings the early church determined to be or the early church regarded as authoritative. And there were three different types of concerns. Uh, letter A, this is under number two, theological concerns. Letter two, or letter B is ecclesiastical concerns and then C is political concerns. And I think this is going to absorb the rest of our time here today. Before we get on to this section, are there any questions? that you have regarding what we mean when we refer to the word canon. Yes, Cornell. The Book of Mormon, yes, that was it. Nobody else said that. Anybody look around at me like I was stupid for even suggesting there was a fourth one. Yes, Book of Mormon. I don't know how I forgot that one. Uh, speaking of the Mormon church, it's understandable. All right, are there any other questions or comments that don't make me look stupid? Any questions or comments that I can leverage into making myself look intelligent? No? Okay. Number two, the need to define the canon. Did you have something you want to say publicly or you're just going to laugh at me? That's it? Okay. Okay. First, theological concerns. There was, in after the time of the apostles, and let's say... Um, no, we can actually say that during the time of the apostles, there began to be writings, there came to be writings that claimed to be apostolic in origin. Can you think of an example, even during the New Testament, of that? Paul said to the Thessalonians, is it in 2 Thessalonians? Do not be alarmed um, about what you have heard as if in a letter from us. He refers to a letter that somebody had sent to the Thessalonian church that had talked about the day of the Lord. And Paul, that seems to suggest that there were writings out there that were being sent to Christians under Paul's authority as this came from Paul, but they weren't really apostolic. They didn't come from Paul. We certainly know that after the, toward the end of the first century and after the end of the first century, 100 AD, that there were writings that began to circulate that were false writings written by people who claimed to be apostles and claimed to be prophets. And these writings began to circulate amongst heretical groups. And there's a, uh, an excellent early church example of this in a man who was known as Marcion. Marcion, M-A-R-C-I-O-N. 
And in order to appreciate the problem that the early church faced or the difficulty that the early church faced, you just have to study a little bit about the life and the ministry of Marcion. He was born in 100 A.D. at Sinope, and he was a huge fan of the Apostle Paul. Huge fan of the Apostle Paul. Paul was his his man crush. So anything that Paul wrote, anything that Paul said, anything that Paul believed, Marcion was all in on the Apostle Paul. And he ultimately concluded that Paul was the only apostle who accurately communicated the truth that Jesus delivered. And Paul was the only apostle who preserved the teaching of Jesus in its purity. Marcion is the first person that we know of who published a fixed collection of what he called New Testament books. Now, let me be clear, Marcion is not the first person to publish a list of New Testament books. Marcion is the first person that we know of who published an official list of New Testament books. So what did Marcion... We're going to return to that here in just a moment. What did Marcion teach? Here were some of Marcion's teachings. He believed that not only the Old Testament law, but that the entire Old Testament itself had been superseded by the Gospel. And that the Gospel was something that was completely new, not something foreshadowed or pictured or even promised under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. That the Gospel itself and the teaching of Jesus was something entirely new, as if God took the entire Old Testament and that Old Covenant and He just wiped it away. It had no meaning. He just started from scratch something entirely new. So we would say that the New Testament is really the fulfillment of the Old, that the Old foreshadows and portends the New, and that the New really is the fulfillment of that and the accomplishment and, and the, the zenith of all of that, the conclusion of it. Marcion would have said the Gospel is something entirely new. So all the Old Testament needs to be ditched. He would say, and he taught, that the Law and the Prophets made no preparation for Christ whatsoever, but that anything in Paul's writings that might suggest any kind of Old Testament origin for a New Testament teaching, that anything in Paul's writings that suggested a connection to the Old Testament must have been added by a legalistic Judaizer who was trying to corrupt Paul's writings. So he maintained that all of the other apostles, all of them, all corrupted the teachings of Jesus by adding admixtures of legalism into the teachings of Jesus. And he distinguished between the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament, saying that they were two different deities with independent existence. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were two independent and separate deities with independent existences. So he would say, well, this is the God of the Old Testament. That's not the same as the God of the New Testament. That's a, a modern day, there's a modern day form of, of Marcionism that kind of teaches the same thing. I've heard people say that. You, know, you can't, you can't trust the God of the Old Testament stuff. He got it all wrong. God in the God of Jesus, Jesus came and accurately communicated to us the truth. And that had nothing to do with anything, any of the God of the Old Testament. So Marcion, because of his view of Judaism and the Old Testament, uh, scriptures and the Old Covenant, he would have said, to borrow the vernacular of a modern false teacher, that we needed to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. That's Andy Stanley's language. That's a form of Marcionism. That we just need to just unhitch and disregard all of the Old Testament. We just have the New Testament. That's, that's Marcionism. Marcionism was an, an early form of Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism believed that the God who created the material world was different from the God with whom Jesus spoke. And the G God of Jesus was good and kind and merciful and gracious and willing to forgive. And the God of the Old Testament was a different God, an angry, vengeful, um, pagan, almost a pagan deity. So whatever happened to Marcion? Now Marcion, cropped up in the early the new church, and you can imagine that he would instantly find common ground, ground with a lot of Christians in the first century. Why? Paul's my man, right? You're going to find, you're going to find almost a ready audience amongst Gentiles 
for this idea that we need to forget the Jews, forget the Old Covenant. Here's the Apostle Paul. Brand new Gospel. Brand new teaching. This is great. Paul's my man. I've got Paul's writings here. And I affirm the authority of Paul. He would have instantly found some common ground with a lot of Christians. So whatever happened to him? The leaders of the church in Rome found his teachings to be unacceptable. And so Marcion withdrew from the church in Rome and started his own fellowship. It survived for a few generations. Uh, growth in Marcion's church came only by conversion since one of the teachings of Marcion was absolute celibacy by all of the members of the Marcion church. Absolute celibacy. Now that's a hard sell. Right? You want to join our movement? Yeah, you like Paul. I like Paul. Tell me, what does this involve? Well, celibacy. I don't know. That's a hard sell. So the only, the only opportunity you have to grow your fellowship is converting people to your way of thinking. Since you're not, and this was part of Gnosticism, the idea that anything physical was bad, only the spiritual was good. And therefore, any physical desires or the fulfillment of those physical desires was a bad and evil thing in and of itself. And even within marriage, this was not something to be enjoyed or participated in. And so, of course, you have no kids. Being born in Marcion's church, it eventually became all old people and died away. That was Marcion's movement. Now, what did Marcion publish? I mentioned earlier that he was the first person that we know of who published a list of what he considered canonical books, even though in Marcion's day, the word canon wouldn't have been used in, in that sense, probably. But what did he publish? He published an edition of the Greek New Testament, which he considered to be inspired. He called it Gospel and Apostle. Gospel and Apostle was the name of his book. And that referred to its two component parts. The Gospel was an edition of the Gospel of what? Which Gospel? Because it's singular, not Gospels and Apostles. It's Gospel, singular, and Apostle, singular. So obviously we could probably guess what Apostles' writings were in there, right? Paul's? Right. Which Gospel do you think Marcion included? Any guess? Sorry, what? Luke. It was Luke. Why Luke's Gospel? Yeah, Luke was Paul's traveling companion. Paul's fingerprints are all over the Gospel of Luke, as it were. Luke is a very Gentile-oriented Gospel. It mentions Jews. Luke's a very Gentile-oriented Gospel. And of course, it was written by Luke, who was Paul's physician and traveling companion. And of course, Luke is somebody that Paul mentions in 2 Timothy. So, but, I should say, but Marcion purged the Gospel of Luke of all the elements that he deemed to be incompatible with his understanding of truth. And so he viewed those purged sections as inserted by Judaistic scribes. For instance, the birth of Jesus in Luke's Gospel was omitted. Why? Because Marcion believed that Jesus came by supernatural descent out of heaven, just like he left. Why would Jesus have to come from supernatural descent? Because anything related to childbirth or being in the womb of a mother, these things were material and therefore they were evil and dirty and bad. And so he purged the Gospel of Luke of of that aspect, the birth narrative of Jesus. Um, Marcion found the whole idea of conception and childbearing to be disgusting, which of course explains his ban, or his promotion, I should say, of celibacy. And so what was the response of the... Oh, no, no. Um, so that was the apostle section of it, Luke. Uh, let me talk for a moment about the apostle section of his book, or his list of books. Out of the... The apostle contained ten of Paul's letters... Instead of 13, 10 of Paul's letters, the pastoral epistles were missing. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, they were all missing from Marcion's apostle. But that is probably because Marcion didn't have access to those books, not because he uh, viewed them as, as non-canonical. 
He just would have, he just didn't even know, probably didn't know. We can't know for certain, but likely Marcion did not know that those books even existed, so he didn't have access to them. And he handled Paul's writings the same way that he did Luke's writing, in that anything that appeared inconsistent with his beliefs, he removed. He assumed that all of those things that he disagreed with, anything referencing positively the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, had to have been inserted by legalistic scribes, Jewish scribes, who were trying to work their Judaism and their Old Testament stuff into Paul's writings. So what was the response of the church? Well, Tertullian was railed against, uh, Tertullian, early church father, railed against Marcion in his book, aptly titled, Against Marcion. Now, because of that controversy that you have here a, a teacher who becomes quite fashionable uh, early on in the early church, and he is he's quite in love with Paul and Paul's writings. He accepts one of your Gospels, and he accepts at least ten of the books of, uh, that you would accept as canonical in the early church. Can you see the need that there would be for some standard, some official list by what, what, what do we do with this? Is Marcion's Gospel, copy of Luke's Gospel, the right one? Or is there another copy of Luke's Gospel that is the right one? If Marcion only includes ten of those, do we reject three, three of Paul's other epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus? What do we do with that? So there came to be this need of establishing some sort of a list, some sort of recognition of what books are in the list and what books are not in the list. What do we regard as authoritative? And this becomes especially needful when you're dealing with false teaching and false teachers because in dealing with a false teacher, you have to be able to quote from an authority. So for instance, if you are dealing with a Mormon who has come to your front door and they're trying to evangelize you into the Mormon church and you begin to address their doctrine, there is immediately an, an inability to communicate between you and the Mormon missionary because they have an entirely different authority structure. They recognize the church and they recognize the apostles of their church and they recognize the Pearl of Great Price and the Doctrine and Covenants. And what's the other one? The Book of Mormon. Also is canonical or authoritative. So they're going to quote from their authoritative sources. And you're going to want to quote from your authoritative sources, which is the canonical books of Scripture. And so if you're dealing with a false teacher, there has to be something where you say, what, what books do we regard as the New Covenant, New Testament community of saints, God's people, what books do we regard as authoritative? This was the theological concern, especially when dealing with false teachers and heretics like Marcion. Second, letter B, there were ecclesiastical concerns. And by the way, when I talk about Gnosticism, we did a, I did a series, I'm not even sure if it's on the website anymore, on early church, early church heresies. And we talked about Gnosticism at some length in there. So if you don't know what Gnosticism is, those should be available on the church website, I think. Um, and if they're not there, you ask me for them if you want them, and I can make copies of them or something and give them to you. But uh, Gnosticism was, you, you see the seeds of Gnostic theology in some of the New Testament writings, the book of Colossians, for instance. You can see that Paul is arguing against false doctrine. He doesn't call it Gnosticism because the doctrine was there and it was starting to crop up even though it hadn't kind of come to full bloom yet. It was still, it was there. And he's dealing with issues of Gnostic, Gnosticism in Colossians. First John, which uh, David is teaching through, um, in adult Sunday school class when I'm not here and Cornell's not here. First John deals with that, the very introduction, those things which we have seen, which we have heard, which are, uh, which our eyes have seen, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. That was a, a direct affront to Gnostic theology, which taught that Jesus was merely a spirit and had no physical form. And John is addressing those. New Testament books address Gnostic theology, even, and it's, it's kind of there in its seed form in the early church. Well, by the end of the first century, it had, was a full-blown heresy that was affecting everything. Okay, letter B. Ecclesiastical concerns. Ecclesiastical concerns have to do with uh, church concerns. Um, 
Which books should be read in the public worship service? Imagine that you're sitting in the year 100. Which books do we read in the public worship service? Because we have a letter from Clement, and we have a letter from Paul. Are these equal? Which of these books do we, which of these books do we pick up and read and make people obey? Expect people to obey? What books do we teach from? We know that the reading of Scripture involved apostolic books. 1 Thessalonians 5.27, I urge you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. Colossians 4.16, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans. The apostles, Paul particularly, when he was writing his epistles, expected those epistles when they were received by the churches to be read and to be obeyed by the church because he had apostolic authority. And Paul wrote knowing that he had apostolic authority. And so you have to ask the question, which books then do we read in the public worship service? Or which books do we read as authoritative and which books do we regard merely as devotional? Today we have creeds and confessions that we read. When I preached through the Gospel of John in the early chapters, I read often from the Chalcedonian Creed. And we have the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. So we have creeds and confessions, the London London Baptist Confession. We have all kinds of confessions and, and creeds and catechisms today that we might use. But do we regard those as authoritative on the level of Romans? Would we regard the Chalcedonian Creed as authoritative on the same level as John? Even though I might quote from some of those sources in church or use them in teaching, do we regard them as authoritative? In the early church, they would have to face the same question. Which books do we regard as authoritative and which books do we regard as merely devotional? For instance, there was a letter that Clement sent to the church in Corinth that was read for decades, but it was never viewed as Scripture but it was read and used in the church of Corinth for decades after Paul wrote his letters. And the early church revealed, revered the apostolic writings. So another question, which books should be translated into other languages for evangelizing pagans? That's a good question, right? In the early church, you got the, the epistle of Clement, and you got the epistle of Paul to the Romans. Which book do we translate to go evangelize pagans? If we're going to take this into Egypt, we're going to send a missionary to Egypt to evangelize the Egyptian pagans, do we translate as scripture the gospel of Clement or sorry the, the letter from Clement or do we translate the letter from Paul to the church at Rome? Well, what do you want to what do you want to translate? If you're going to spend your efforts translating and copying something, you don't want to translate and copy what you believe to be scripture. We do the same thing today by the way. The hunts um, when they went to Paraguay and started translating the New Testament, they they didn't translate John MacArthur's commentaries on the New Testament into Manhui. They started with scripture. And once they had worked through sufficient Scripture, then they began to translate other study resources alongside of that. But the priority was Scripture because it was authoritative. Another question, which books are to regulate the life of the church? What do we turn for, for instruction, turn to for instruction in doctrine, teaching, church polity, moral issues, etc.? And then which books do you preach from and teach from? These are the questions, the ecclesiastical concerns of the early church. There's a lot of books out there, a lot of competing books. Which ones do we regard as authoritative? Which ones are we going to translate? Which ones are we going to preach from? Which ones are we going to teach from? These are the ecclesiastical concerns. Before we move on to the last one here, we'd have a few more minutes. Are there any questions? Nope. All right, we're either in the chloroform layer or I'm just doing a really good job of communicating everything. Number three, the political concerns. There were political concerns in the early church. The emperor Diocletian, whose name was... Gaius Aurelius Valerius Diocletianus. If you, if, no, no. He reigned from 284 to 305 A.D. 
And according to Eusebius, who was a church historian, Diocletian ordered in 303, quote, the destruction by fire of the Scriptures, close quote. Diocletian was persecuting the church. He ordered the destruction by fire of the Scriptures. Now, ironically, within 25 years of his edict in 303, the Emperor Constantine, who succeeded him at some point, became a believer, and he ordered Eusebius, that church historian, to prepare and distribute 50 copies of the Scriptures. And Constantine then made an official list of those canonical books because when Constantine wanted the scriptures to be uh the scriptures to be published or produced for the sake of the church because he was now a Christian history is somewhat divided as to how legitimate his conversion was but he at least was promoting scripture and producing scriptures well you'd, you'd have to have the Constantine's around 325 328 AD so you'd have to ask the question well then which books are we regarding which books are is Eusebius supposed to produce for the church right you have to know which one of those is, because by 300, you've got all of those pseudepigraphal and apocryphal books. You've got the books written between the Old Testament and the New Testament that's in the Catholic Bible, the Apocrypha. Then you've got a whole bunch of uh, writings that claim to be apostolic from the first 300 years of church history. You have the writings of the apostles alongside of the epistles of Clement and, and the writings of the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of whoever and the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Barnabas and all of these other books. So which, which ones do you promote? Well, Constantine would have to make that decision. So he eventually published a, a list of the books that were considered at 325 canonical. Now here's the historical mistake that many people make. They look at Constantine's publication of that and his production of the Scriptures and they say, the pagan emperor Constantine determined which books are in your Bible. We talked about presuppositions at the beginning. What's the presupposition behind that statement? That nobody knew which books were authoritative until Constantine published his list. So the assumption is that until Constantine published his list, there was no official list, or nobody knew. Or the Christians just assumed all of those books were authoritative. That's what's the assumption. I would look at what Constantine did and say, Already people knew which books were inspired and which books were canonical. And all Constantine was doing is saying, these are the books that are recognized by the church. Therefore, publish these. Not that Constantine made the determination, but that Constantine recognized what had already been determined a long, long time before that. Okay, so that is one of the political concerns. Now, when... Um, okay, so in light of that persecution, let me ask you this question. When Roman soldiers arrive at your home and want you to hand over the sacred writings because Gaius Aurelius Valenius Diocletianus has ordered the destruction of the Scriptures by fire. So when they show up at your house and they order you to hand over the sacred writings or the Scriptures, and they're Roman soldiers, they're not Christians, which books do you hand them? The Book of Mormon. Yeah, they're very good. <clears throat> which, books, which books do you hand them? You'd have to know which books the church regards as authoritative, wouldn't you? You wouldn't want to hand over Scripture if you can hand over the Shepherd of Hermes or the Didache or the Gospel of Barnabas or the Gospel of Mary. If you can, if a Roman soldier shows up and they're saying, give us your sacred writings, and you say, well, we got the Shepherd of Hermes here and here's a letter from Clement and here's the Gospel of Mary, here's the Gospel of Barnabas and here's a copy of the Gospel of Thomas. There you go. They're going to look at that and say, yeah, old writings, religious, there's stuff about Jesus in here. Yeah, that looks good. And they're going to walk away and destroy those. So in the light of persecution, that's the political concern. In the light of persecution, you need to know, already Christians would need to know which books are authoritative and which books are not. Do you have a question? 
who actually would have had copies of anything at that point. So if we're talking about 300 A.D., there was already by that time widespread copying and distribution of New Testament documents and authoritative documents. Individual members of churches? Um, probably not. Everybody in an individual church would have had a copy of those things. But somebody in the church, Christians did collect those books. And they used some of them for devotional reading and some of them as authoritative reading in the church. Alright, so if you had a copy of the Shepherd of Hermes and a copy of the Epistle of Clement, you would give them over to satisfy the officials without giving up Scripture itself. And then here's another political concern. If you're going to be asked to die for one of these books, don't you want to know which one you're going to die for? If you're going to spend your efforts copying something in a dark cave with the threat of the Roman government overshadowing you with death as the sentence for you copying that book, don't you know which one of those books you're going to want to risk your life for? Are you really going to want to risk your life to study the, the, the letter from Clement? Are you really going to want to risk your life to copy the Shepherd of Hermes? See, those are the political concerns in the early churches. The Christians faced persecution. They needed to know which books do we read, which books do we regard as authoritative, which books do we hand over to Roman officials, which books are we willing to die for, which books do we want to translate in order to evangelize pagans, and which books do we need to make sure that we preserve for our children and our grandchildren and generations to come. Those were the theological, the political, and the ecclesiastical concerns that required people to think through clearly what books do we regard as authoritative? And I would suggest to you that that decision was made long before Constantine ever made his list of what he wanted to have produced and published for the Christians in the Roman Empire. Now, there were a couple of other considerations. Books were circulated and copied, even though no official list was ever published, um, because there was no list given by the apostles, right? There's, there's no chapter 14 in... No, there's 14 in uh, Romans. <laughs> a bad example. Uh, there, there's no chapter 17 in the, in the book of Romans that says, oh, by the way, here are all the list of all the books that I've written. That Paul says that. Paul makes reference to other books that he wrote, but no apostle ever produced a list of canon, what was to be considered canonical books. Jesus didn't give a list of books that we should expect. At no point in the Gospels does Jesus ever say, look i got this guy named Paul. I haven't saved him yet. I'm going to eventually. He's going to evangelize a whole bunch of people, and here's a list of the books he's going to write for you guys. Jesus didn't leave us an official authoritative list. So it fell then to the church to recognize which books were given by God and which books were not. And it did take a while for there to be a universal recognition of various books in the New Testament. It did take a little bit, a while by our standards, but not a while by historical standards. Right? But, Heating up coffee in a microwave takes a while for us, right? That's oh, I got to do that. I wish I didn't have. To, wish my coffee hadn't cooled off. If I only had a, a mug that would keep my coffee hot all the time, so I never had to waste that ninety seconds heating that up again, right? So that type of that's a while for us. But in the early church, for something to take decades before it would be officially recognized and kind of circulated and and widely widespread, that was not a long time in in that time period in the ancient world. All right, that is it for our time. So we just did get to. Um, we're going to pick it up next week with a discussion about why universal recognition took so long and, um, and then how it is that we recognize which books are authoritative and which books are not. Yes? When did you say Constantine? Constantine was officially saved in 325 A.D. And I'm not going to make any determination whether Constantine's conversion was genuine or not. But he was supposedly saved in 325 A.D. Um, 325? Yeah, now I'm questioning that. Just like the Book of Mormon thing. It was it was the early third century or fourth early fourth century, so it was after three hundred, 
because um, 325 was the Council of Nicaea, and it was Constantine who called that. So he was a Christian by 325. Let's just say that. Right? Yes? Okay, so the question is, regarding Marcion, when he would take out sections from Paul's writings of the Gospel of Luke, um, because they didn't fit with his theology of the Old Testament, did he leave those sections blank and just cut them out, or did he fill them with his own stuff? I, I, don't, I don't think that he filled them with his own detail. I think he just simply omitted that in copying those books and in publishing those books. So for those books of Paul, it would have been quite prolific, obviously, because the Apostle Paul makes mention of, he quotes the Old Testament all the way through his, his books. Um, must have been much shorter than Paul's originals. Yeah, it probably would have been. Or if Marcion felt that the Apostle Paul was using the Old Testament in such a way as to disparage the Old Testament, then he would have included that. It would, it would have been only Paul's glowing references to the Old Testament that he would have felt the need to, to get rid of. Yes, 312. That's, that's better than it. Yeah, 312. That's Constantine's conversion. Thank you. 312. Yeah. Yeah, he, in battle he saw a cross and a symbol of a cross in the sky. He had a vision and said, in this, in this symbol or in this sign you shall conquer. And that was his conversion. I don't know. More reliable than many conversions in many churches today, I guess. But Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.